0: Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Oh,
1: hello. Hello. Good to be back.
0: And Alex Lawson.
1: Yes. Hi. Thank you. And I want to thank everybody for coming to our uh, end of 2021 show. It was a crazy year. Uh, and yeah. uh, we thank everyone for listening.
2: It's been a long, long six days. <laughs> yes.
1: I had uh, I had I had Bean Dad takes
2: I was going to ask you about Bill and of course that's uh, all been overtaken now. I still um, thought I I still have my run through all written that we're just going to do Bean Dad stuff the whole time. So we we were going to check on the I trademarks
1: wish. and all this stuff. Uh, I don't know, but uh, yeah, uh, a lot of news to talk about. I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we obviously have to at least for a little bit talk about the events of yesterday we're recording this on Thursday as we normally do and um, we had a full-on insurrection at the Capitol yesterday and while we won't get too much into that because a lot of it's political and we tend to just stick with the legal stuff I do think there's a few legal spirals that are already starting so we just kind of want to want to mention some of that
2: well and i think i think a great one to start with is you mentioned amber sort of you know with emphasis for effect the 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 term insurrection but i think that's from a legal perspective that's going to be you know an interesting uh, silo here that that you know was this a protest that's protected I, i think most people who saw it would say that it went beyond that it went to rioting was it was it sedition? I mean, it was, uh, you know, going against a, a portion of the federal government. So right. um, it'll be interesting, you know, as we see potential prosecutions, we see the the new administration coming in. Is it terrorism? I mean, we we heard some people referring to it as domestic terrorism. Alex and I had an interesting chat today about the uh, usefulness of the, the, the term domestic terrorist yeah. as opposed to just calling people terrorists. Um, yeah. But I think that's an interesting bucket here.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's just a signal, too, about things we talk about a lot on the show in a variety of contexts where, obviously, in the legal wor- world, the exact terminology you apply to something can be so important.
1: Right. It's not, you know, it's easy to sort of frame it as a pedantic thing. Or I know a lot of news organizations like us, were are sort of struggling, or not or not struggling, but having debates about how exactly how to characterize right. it. As Bill said, it becomes materially important when you try to build a case about are you charging people, like you say, with terrorism or with trespassing or something in between. We'll see on all that. We are awaiting clarity on some key, on the legal fallout. We will keep you, uh, the listeners, up to date as we have things to report regarding uh, arrests, charges, prosecution. I saw the DOJ put out a statement today, Thursday, saying they could unroll charges against some individuals as soon as today. Um, But much of the legwork is still yet to come and will likely fall to the next administration. Did want to mention, sort of overshadowed yesterday, was the fact that the U.S. Senate, before it was under siege, officially flipped... To Democratic control. The two two Democratic candidates won the runoff races in Georgia. And that matters for us and for our audience, because with the sort of slimmest of majority margins now, it's a 50-50 split. Uh, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will provide a tie-breaking vote with that slim majority. Um, that will make it tough on legislation where you still need 60 votes to get anything really meaningful done, but not for nominations. Um, and that includes, of course, judges uh, and our own Andrew Craigie wrote a really uh, very in-depth story. Uh, if you are interested in the judges that might be on a Biden shortlist or a long list in the case, uh, Andrew detailed 65 potential <laughs> so uh, judicial many. picks. Yeah, for uh, for the for the Biden administration. Anyone,
2: I, I think I'm on that list. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> uh, I think you'd make a fine uh, uh, a fine jurist. Um, Thank you so, so much. Yeah, uh, that's a lot of names, and I would encourage you guys to, if that's
2: interesting to you, to go check out Andrew's story uh, as well. So, and the, uh, I mean, the the you know the same threshold you mentioned also applies to cabinet positions. And, Correct. Um, you know, we've already seen a, a major one for, for our world. We saw that uh, uh, Merrick Garland, former um, a, a D.C. Circuit judge and a uh, sort of infamous uh, failed Supreme Court nominee, has been picked as uh, the Biden administration's Attorney general so uh, you know there had been some question of you know would would a republican controlled uh, uh, Senate put put up a fight for any you know members of, of a yeah. Biden cabinet obviously some of that will be changed now as well
0: yeah Yeah. Um- We were lucky enough to have Jimmy Hoover join us today, and Alex and I talked to him about that Garland nomination. Um, We'll share that a little later in the show, but it's a good talk because I think um, most people really only remember him as a jurist. I mean, I know I spent a lot of time reading his opinions and that kind of thing when we were talking about his Supreme Court nomination, so we really dig into what it will mean when he's heading up the Justice Department.
1: Yeah, it was great to talk with Jimmy. Always great to have him on the show. We did want to talk about one story moving uh, out of D.C. for just a moment. uh, There is still no shortage of COVID news, and there's a very fascinating case bubbling up in the Second Circuit that involves sort of public safety rules and music performances, things like that. Bill, why don't you break that down for us?
2: Yeah, it's a case that uh, the the Second Circuit heard this week here in New York. They labeled it during arguments a... Quote, very strange case. Um, That's, that is that is pro se catnip right there. If a judge, <laughs> yeah. if, a, if, a, if a circuit judge is going
1: to say it's strange, they also said bizarre, right? I think. Uh, so, right. Yeah. But so,
2: I mean, we're talking about a set of New York State COVID rules about what can and cannot happen in bars uh, during the pandemic, particularly as it relates to music. And uh, the case is about whether or not those rules violate the First Amendment. So it's a very interesting. We've talked a lot on this show about the interplay between basic rights and public health measures during the pandemic. So this is a very interesting sort of strange version of that.
0: So let's get into what rules are at play here. What what are we talking about?
2: New York has some of the obviously uh, the pandemic hit New York very hard very early on. So New York has some of the um, some of the strictest rules, uh, you know, on Public life uh, during during these times, and um, many of the most public facing, the ones that people run into the most, are those dealing with bars and restaurants. Um, they range from the the I mean, honestly, pretty great rules. Like the, the the there's tons of new outdoor seating, and all sorts of rules have been changed about you know public streets, and 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 there's <laughs> the restaurants have expanded out into what used to just be parking spaces um, to the you know the fairly reasonable the idea that you can. You can go inside, but really just just use the bathroom, where you can't you can't linger in there. You need to wear a yep. mask inside. To the sort of annoying and strange, like the the I think most people have run into the rule that um, most people in New York have run into the rule that that y- if you're going to buy a drink at a place now, you need to order some small piece of food, which has raised all sorts of strange problems for bars that don't typically sell food. Um, I've housed r- so
1: many american
2: cheese sandwiches on white bread. I can't this, even begin to tell you. Yes. Right. The 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 <laughs> small bag of like of of fries for $2 or the hot yes. dog or whatever. Yes. Um but so one of these rules uh, that we're specifically talking about here deals with live music at bars and restaurants. Um the state tried to strike sort of a bargain or a compromise here when they wrote this. They said that you can't have actual music events that draw people for the music itself a ticketed event you can't have that but an eatery can have live music that is uh quote unquote incidental to the dining experience so you can have someone there playing a a guitar while people eat dinner you can have a dj you just can't have a you know an event where you're drawing people there for a music event
0: Oh man, classic thing here. What does incidental mean? I mean, that's <laughs> gotta be where this story's going. But yeah, I mean it's a little weird here, right? That uh that's so specific. I mean, they've really gotten pretty deep in the weeds.
1: My grandpa had a saying about people trying to pick gnat shit out of pepper, and that's what comes to mind here, uh, when you're trying to parse the different incidences of music at a bar.
2: Sure. Um <laughs> I'm sure Steve's thrilled to uh, get the bleep button out. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, yes, uh, to Amber's point that that um, it's I think this is a really good illustration of the almost comical level of, you know, this granular intrusion yeah. that they've had to make into private businesses as they've dealt with a health crisis that I don't think it needs to be restated has already killed more than 30,000 New Yorkers and, and more than 350,000 people across the country. So it's you know, it's a. It's a really intrusive thing and a really weird thing the way they're doing this, but there's obviously a a pressing need. Here's a good quote from one of the court documents in this case that we're going to talk about in a second that I thought really got to maybe the absurdity of what we're talking about. Quote, Because music should be incidental to the dining experience and not the draw itself, advertised and or ticketed shows are not permissible. Neither is dancing. Many other forms of amusement, such as darts, pool, and cornhole, are also prohibited. Although the guidance permits live trivia events provided all relevant guidelines are followed, that is because this activity is done while seated at the patrons' table. So, you know, the logic behind this if, you know, if you're asking why they drew the line where they did is that people tend to show up and congregate for a musical event that if, if there's a, you know, there's a band on, they start at nine, everyone gets there at nine and everyone (laughs) stays for the whole thing. Yeah. Which raises the risk of transmission. According to the state Uh, with incidental music, people come and they go, they have their meal and the music is playing, but they are not all showing up at the same time. This is what the state uh, liquor authority said for why they put this line where it is.
0: I mean, I do kind of get that logic as you've laid it out, but, um, just reading the the sort of quote alone, it's got a real footloose vibe to it, where it's like, I, <laughs> "Don't do anything that's too fun or that you would like too much."
2: Yeah, the well, the, you don't the, have the, wo- the whooshing of darts is spreading uh, spreading the virus <laughs> through the air. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I can't. I I struggle to think of a more socially distanced lawn game than cornhole. But anyway, we we could we could parse this forever uh, at an intellectual level. We're talking about it because somebody filed a lawsuit. So let's talk about the case itself a little bit.
2: We are. They uh, they sued because they didn't like that use, the use the cornhole name was used. They wanted it to be referred to as bags. As
1: bags, I I'm, I'm inclined to agree, but uh, that's not for me to say right now.
2: But yeah, so a guy named uh, Michael Hund, uh who is a uh a guitarist from Buffalo, he sued the state in August arguing that the distinction was fairly arbitrary and that it unfairly discriminated against one type of live music in a way that a a government rule shouldn't. He said that the incidental rule was um uh gutting his livelihood that that you know that he made his money by having these ticketed musical performances and that um that it just really wasn't fair the way that this was happening. In November, a federal judge agreed with that argument, issuing uh, a preliminary injunction that barred the state from enforcing the rule. Um, she said that there was really just no rhyme or reason to where they had drawn the the distinction. Um, that th- the math didn't really add up. That there was this higher risk. She went through this these various you know factors for why uh, you know that that the same mask rules are in effect for both places that the congregation stuff doesn't really add up she also cited the fact that the state allows live trivia as i mentioned earlier in that quote which you know people are showing up at the same time for that it's a game you have to all play it at the same time um movies are open which have similar sort of uh, you know same time congregation stuff so there are other risky events that the state chose not to ban so she, she, she sort of didn't see the 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 you know the necessity to do that here
0: well, right at the beginning of setting this story up for us, you said that we have some appellate level judges that found this very bizarre. So what happened when it got up to the higher court?
2: Yeah, it's 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 at the Second Circuit. They heard arguments this week. Um uh our intrepid court reporter Pete Brush was there uh for the proceedings. And the judges seemed a little flummoxed by the whole situation, perhaps the way that we are, you know, that I'm <laughs> and and yeah. But but I mean I but but more so in a, in a substantive way they seem more on the side of the state than than the district judge had at at one point Judge Guido Calabresi looking at this whole situation said quote this is a very strange case it's very bizarre uh, <laughs> and you know the, but the, but the judge looked at this and they and they sort of pushed back on this argument that this was absurd to draw the line here and sort of suggested the state might have you know, more authority to impose this restriction than the lower court had given them credit for. Quote, my general view in these cases is when we try to guess the merits, we often get it wrong. So we, we will see what happens there. You know, it's a three-judge panel. Um, there's, there's other cases that are challenging this in state court. So it's sort of a tricky situation. But um, uh, the court, at least at least one member of the court, seemed fairly skeptical of the idea that this was a First Amendment violation.
0: So where does that leave us? I mean, it seems like, you know, lower court went one way, judges skeptical now. Do we think the Second Circuit is just on the side of these kind of restrictions?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of the thread here, that that the the scrutiny from the Second Circuit is not particularly surprising because they have been fairly unwilling to strike down New York's COVID restrictions, which I had mentioned earlier are some of the strictest in the country. Um, They were pretty skeptical of a case they heard uh last year about seeking to strike down the the state's uh you know food curfew that that restaurants have Mm -hmm. to close at midnight um they also refused fairly famously to strike down a, a state ban on religious gatherings and that ruling later led to a supreme court ruling that that um that did strike those down so we'll see but it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be out of the norm for the second circuit to say, look, the state really needs to be able to do this. It's a strange time. And and they, you know, we need to give them a, a bit of deference here um, as for this bizarre incidental music rule itself. <laughs> yeah, it's all a little bit academic right now um, because amid surging COVID numbers, indoor dining in New York is entirely shut down again. It was not yeah. when this all when this case started. That's true. Um, uh, but the, the rule does still apply to the, you know, limited and fairly chilly right now, outdoor dining situations. And it will be a much more pressing issue if um, uh, if the cases start to drop and the state decides to reopen the, you know, the limited dining, but keep COVID restrictions in place for a little while. During that overlap, the, you know, how this, you know, how this rule works will be will be fairly important. But as I mentioned earlier... It's just a very interesting look at one of at the the extremely difficult task that these regulators have had to take on in terms mm-hmm. of you know not not offending our basic constitutional rights, but also dealing with um, the the realities of a pandemic.
0: This week, President elect Joe Biden nominated Merrick Garland for the role of Attorney General. Most of us remember Garland as Obama's Supreme Court pick that was blocked by Republicans. But what makes him a qualified candidate for Attorney General? And what can we expect from him when he's in that role? Here to break it all down is one of our favorite guests, Supreme Court reporter and co host of our sister show, The Term, Jimmy Hoover.
3: Thanks for having me on, Amber.
0: Yeah, um, I feel like we talked about Garland a million years ago, um, and now he's back to uh, some, some additional prominence. Um, but what I really remember from him is lots of discussions we had about his actual jurisprudence and not so much about his other bona fides for a job like attorney general. Can you kind of walk us through what he has in his background that makes him the right fit for this?
3: Sure. Yeah. For people who may be kind of surprised by this selection, long before he was a judge, he had very deep uh, ties to the Department of Justice, beginning even in 1979 after he completed his Supreme Court clerkship. That's where he first went to work at the department as a special assistant to the attorney general. And over the years, you know, he climbed the department ladder and became uh, an assistant U.S. attorney in the D.C. U.S. attorney's office, prosecuting, you know, drug cases, public corruption cases and things like that. But it was really when he became the principal deputy attorney general, when he kind of rose to national prominence while overseeing, you know, obviously the Oklahoma City bombing investigation and the Unabomber investigation. And, you know, over the years, uh, he developed a pretty strong bond and connection with the, you know, career employees at the Department of Justice. And so now really is seeing this, you know, uh, nomination Uh, as attorney general, as a a sort of homecoming of sorts after so many years on the bench.
1: Yeah, I would would definitely refer everyone to your story that you wrote this week for us for a deeper look at this stuff. We can go uh, across some of the hits here. I was also uh, struck by the fact that I was trying to do some research, and I couldn't really find a recent example of a circuit judge abandoning his seat to be the attorney general. Usually, that's kind of like an end-of-the-line type of legal job, if you don't get the call for SCOTUS, that is.
3: So, um, just kind of interesting. Makes me th- yeah, I think it was just, I think it was Ken Starr who was on the D.C. circuit when he left to be independent counsel, if oh, I'm right. remembering correct. So, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the only other example I can think of. Maybe there are others, but it, it does seem weird how, you know, if he wasn't on the court for, I don't know, 20 plus years, you would probably mm-hmm. think it odd to give up a lifetime appointment, which is a week sweet gig, <laughs> mm-hmm. to become... You know, uh, uh, kind of a political appointee that'll be out in a few years. But Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of coincided nicely with his career trajectory where this can be kind of a sort of bookend to that, you know, long, lengthy uh, tie to the Department of Justice.
0: Yeah. And you really nicely set out for us that um, this is kind of a homecoming. and It's a return to a part of his career that was really fruitful. He was a prosecutor for a long time and moved up the ranks at DOJ. Um, You briefly mentioned a couple of really high profile terrorism cases that he was integral to pursuing. Can we talk a bit more about those? What can we learn about what he did regarding the Unabomber and also the Oklahoma City bombing?
3: Yeah, so he as P DAG I guess is what kind of the Department of Justice lingo uh, refers to it as an acronym, Principal Deputy Attorney General. And his ah. as a senior official in the in the Justice Department, he was kind of in charge with overseeing the investigation. So he kind of decamped from Washington um, and flew out to Oklahoma City um, to to really coordinate and quarterback. You know what was the federal government's response to what was at that point in time, the deadliest terrorist attack that had Mm -hmm. happened in on American soil. And at this point, I think it's still the deadliest domestic terror attack in the Oklahoma city bombing. And, you know, I spoke to a a colleague, Donna Bucelli, who, you know, worked alongside Garland and kind of remembers him as being very meticulous in pretty much his entire approach to the investigation, uh, really uh, rigorous and doing everything by the book You know, she said that he actually literally carried around like a criminal code book to break out, you know, in like a little law seminar every time a a minor issue came out. He was really uh, rigorous about, you know, subpoenas and other records requests going through the proper channels. Mm -hmm. So this is someone who really wanted to get things done in the proper, to the T way, Um, probably sometimes... At the expense of maybe as fast as it could have been done in another way. Yeah. Uh, one example that uh, she mentioned, which was interesting, and I th- think has been uh, reported elsewhere, is you know after the, the the bombing suspect in the case who was later convicted, Timothy McVeigh was you know arraigned in his initial appearance on an Air Force base because obviously you know they, they had to have a secure location for this high profile case. Garland really went to bat. Um, to get the press access to this um, arraignment, just because of the fact that he thought that these proceedings should be open to the public, nothing yep. should be considered to be going on in secret, and so he had to go up against you know uh, the machinery of the government. Obviously, as the air force base is a military facility that's not open to to the public, but in the, in the long run, he was kind of uh, applauded by members of the press for you know bringing introducing some transparency to what was a really high stakes case at that moment.
1: Garland is, of course, the headline grabber because he, you know, was very, very famous for this this Supreme Court dust up and the attorney general is the most important sort of law enforcement job. But the Biden transition team did unveil a couple of other sort of top DOJ post nominees in waiting this week. What do those names kind of, uh, are, are Are those names instructive at all in discerning, you know, the, the direction that the
3: agency might be heading? Well, it signals that Uh, the Biden administration is making good essentially on its promise to focus on these civil rights issues. And I think that's what we heard from Garland in his acceptance uh, speech just just moments ago today when he referred to the Department of Justice's origins, you know, being founded in the wake of Reconstruction to, you know, secure civil rights for Black Americans in the South. And Biden's other uh, Department of Justice Pick uh, Vanita Gupta, as uh, Assistant Attorney General, is another example of that. This is, you know, one of the uh, most prominent civil rights litigators in the country, having uh, held a senior position in the DOJ's Civil Rights Division under the Obama administration. Yeah, um, This is a person who you know, kind of spearheaded the department's efforts to reform a lot of the police departments around the country um, under the Obama administration, entering into consent decrees with various city police departments from Ferguson to Baltimore. And so it is signaling that this is going to be a top priority for the Biden administration to focus on civil rights. Um, And I think Garland uh, is going to be kind of the public face of that as he Mm -hmm. also tries to kind of steered the Department of Justice out of what is a pretty historic legitimacy crisis after having been politicized um, over the last uh, four years. I mean, yeah. you've obviously seen uh, the Department of Justice leadership under Donald Trump come under a lot of criticism from former Department of Justice officials saying that basically there's been improper interference in a lot of the high-profile political cases that we've seen, whether we're talking about Roger Stone or Michael Flynn, mm-hmm. et cetera.
0: Yeah, well, let's get into that a little bit. Um, You brought a clip with you from his um, remarks uh, related to the nomination. And um, some of that is about the importance of an independent um, Justice Department. So let's hear what he had to say.
2: As everyone who watched yesterday's events in Washington now understands, if they did not understand before, the rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for friends, another for foes, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules, depending upon one's race or ethnicity.
0: Yeah, I think that clip's really instructive because we've talked about a few things here. I mean, you brought up that there is a legitimacy crisis with the Justice Department, but also Garland's background as being a really by-the-book um, style prosecutor and also jurist. So what do we make of those two things coming together Um particularly in light of the developments just yesterday. I mean, we we basically had an, an insurrection, a mob at the U.S. Capitol. And I think it's thrown this into stark relief.
3: Right, I think Garland sees his role as kind of a steward of the Department of Justice to kind of shepherd it out of this dark patch. And I think that's probably why Biden chose him, especially because he is respected on both sides of the political aisle. Mm-hmm. And we saw it in his remarks today that, you know, he sees his job is to kind of banish partisan influence from the decisions, uh, the prosecutorial decisions of the Department of Justice. And mm-hmm. and you saw him refer to um, the tenure of Ed Levy, who was the attorney general after Watergate, as kind of a model for how to do that. Um, and Levy was obviously someone who's famous for having, you know, introduced all of these policies and kind of reformed the Department of Justice after what a lot of people consider to be the kind of... Scandalous tampering with the kind of levers of uh, the yeah. justice system by the uh, by President Nixon, and I think Garland's going to try to emulate um, that approach. Now, I think it's probably worth pointing out, though, that um, those policies were kind of put in place only to really suffer during the Trump administration. So, whether that is right. a you know kind of a uh, a panacea. Um, to some of the, the the woes that are ailing the department and the institution is, is remains to be seen, and, and that's why I think you've seen some commentators suggest that the Biden Department of Justice under uh, Merrick Garland should go a step further into actually bringing cases and prosecuting you know the elected officials that contributed to some of these scandals and the the improper interference in the justice system.
1: Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because I think we've pretty firmly established that it's a We can safely say that it is it is a goal of Merrick Garland to restore independence to the DOJ, but he will face calls, like you just said, to prosecute Trump allies and possibly even Trump himself for any number of purported misdeeds, possibly even related to to the to the 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 scene we saw yesterday How do you expect them to thread that needle, though? Because that's kind of tricky stuff, right? I mean, you're having people say, we want this to be an independent agency. And some of those same people are also saying, we want you to vigorously prosecute our political opponent who is now leaving office. I mean, that is not it it can make for some tough optics. Do we have a sense of how they might try and toe the line or or, or rather walk that walk that tightrope a little bit?
3: It's it's still way too early to say Um, if he's looking to Levy as any kind of an example on that front, that circumstance was a little bit different in that Nixon was actually pardoned by President Ford. And uh, Donald Trump doesn't currently have the protection of a presidential pardon, although this is moving uh, quickly, though. Thank you for couching that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) As we record at four o'clock on Thursday. Yes.
3: (laughs) I saw something that The New York Times had reported, but uh, it's a fast evolving situation. So what Garland would do when confronted with potential evidence of criminal misconduct after he comes into office is, is hard to say. I, I think we can, I think we know though from his record that he doesn't balk at you know bringing the tough political cases that need to be brought. I mean, having uh, participate, I think he was one of the you know a team of a small team of prosecutors back in the early nineties um, as a assistant U.S. attorney who you know participated in the investigation that ultimately led to the arrest of. Uh, Than D.C. Mayor Marion Barry on on mm-hmm. drug charges, so he's no stranger to bringing these types of public corruption cases. It's just a question of, you know, whether there's a compelling enough case to be made under his view of what the evidence is. It was interesting. I was reading some of his um, his public remarks on some of the past investigations that he's participated in, and it's it seemed like. You know, he was describing, for instance, his talks with the FBI while they were um, searching the cabin of Unabomber Ted Kaczynski um, in the course of that investigation. And he was very adamant that the FBI keep searching and keep searching and keep searching so that they finally, you know, really have the evidence to have a a slam dunk prosecution. And Mm -hmm. so I think that I can't say one way or another what his political calculation would be in, in bringing a case like that, but you could probably be safe to assume that any prosecution that he would bring of a uh, like a senior elected official whether it was trump or one of his allies or someone else would have to be airtight before he went uh you know public with that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so that's kind of the only insight into that i have but i as we just said it's a pretty fast moving situation
0: yeah i feel like this has been a great way to sort of orient ourselves for this next phase with the justice department Um, and we're going to have a lot to watch so i'm sure we'll have you back on the show jimmy thanks for joining us today
3: yeah my pleasure
0: I our show is something offbeat, and in a relatively tough week we've all had here in America, we did have one shining light, the return of The Bachelor.
1: Yes, uh, and it would, we would not be doing our duty if we did not keep you up to date of all of the uh, contestants in The Bachelor universe that are uh, involved in the legal world. Did want to mention, uh, last season on The Bachelorette, one of the lawyers, there was a date that involved uh, a lie detector test. The guy's name was Riley, and they asked him, because they knew he was a lawyer, they were like, what do you think of these? And he was like, I tell my clients not to take them. And I thought that was very funny. (laughs) Um, But yes, there are two... Very uh, cool. Yes, right. Uh, Because it's it's The Bachelor, the contestants are women this time, and there are two uh, lawyers who are in the contestant pool. The first is uh, a woman named Lauren Maddox. She is from Miami. I did a cursory Google... I found out that she works in Miami, uh, just according to her LinkedIn, couldn't even find a firm page. looks like she works for a small firm called the Law Office Office of Ignacio Sarmiento, so it sounds like a little, uh, obviously, a small shop. So I don't have much on her legal career. However, the one fun fact I wanted to say, and I shared this with Bill on the night that the episode aired, uh, she is the 17th Lauren in Bachelor history. Which uh, seems wow. so low. We're on. <laughs> I mean, we're on, we're on season twenty-five of it the is Bachelor. It's low, you know, And it I seems like
2: there are multiple Laurens on most seasons. So right, that's f- low. They're averaging three point six Laurens per season.
0: This is the kind of stat that I really enjoy. So yeah. that's great.
1: Um but there was one other one Amber if you, if you want to take it away on yeah, here.
0: Yeah, I mean you can maybe fill in some of her actual background. Oh, right, yeah. I just have some color here about the other one. Um her name is Kristen Hopkins.
1: Yes. Uh and- she works in the in the New York. Well yeah, th- th- there is there is a, a colorful detail here. We'll just we'll just empty the empty the chamber on her on her background here. She is uh she works in the, in the New York or or possibly Jersey City office of a small firm called Siegel, McCambridge, Singer and Mahoney. Her practice focuses on sports, recreation, entertainment, product liability, and uh, labor and employment. So yeah, uh, there you go
2: Before we get she- back to, to before we get to that, I want to go back to Lauren really quickly. I'm looking at her bio page on on oh, abc.com. It says her occupation is law school graduate, not actually a lawyer. This so was I'd- different
1: on the, on the show she was corporate attorney. There has been hmm. some yes. there has been some some incongruity between how they are on the website and what made it to air? There's one woman who, on the website, was billed as a, quote, socialite. And on the show, she was a fashion <laughs> entrepreneur. So make of that sure. what you will. Sure, Anyway, sure. Yeah. Sorry, Amber, go ahead. Yeah, anyway, know, Kristen I mean, Hopkins is from Virginia look, Beach. She's a lawyer in New York.
0: Look, on the website, it listed her as Virginia Beach. So I'm glad you brought up the discrepancies. Right. But when she appeared on the show, it said Jersey City. Oh, there and you immediately, go. I was thrilled she can be my new friend she's my neighbor somewhere in this town uh she's a lawyer some of the areas she covers i have had a lot of experience with her at law 360 and elsewhere i think we're going to be best friends um she also came out of the limo walked up to our bachelor and said this the verdict is in and you've been found so guilty of being incredibly fine
1: I mean, <laughs> how many? There? I, I feel like every other. Like, I feel like half of the lawyers who come on the show have said something like that. They like absolutely they're,
0: they're... have to the <laughs> point that I was talking to some friends last last night because I didn't watch the episode until uh, until then, and uh, I circled back to them to give them some of my thoughts. And a bunch of them were like, "You cannot like her because she used that dumb joke." Yeah, it, um, it these is. These of she, course want... were lawyer friends who were like, "Stop it with the lawyer mm-hmm. jokes."
2: I want she... someone to use like a really boring. Like civil <laughs> litigation joke. I want someone to be like, "You're tortuously you to interfering in? with my heart." <laughs> no, uh I, I am want them to,
0: to come in with like a a book, and I want them to like flip to the right page and say, like, "According to statute, yeah, right, <laughs> 12.734,
1: USC." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, um, well, they
1: they they both got roses uh, on on night one, so I guess we'll uh, keep and- our eyes peeled for how they go.
0: And my future best friend, Kristen, uh, does appear in quite a few scenes in the upcoming episodes, like trailer. So I'm expecting to see her for at least a good part of the season when she wins the Heart of the Bachelor. And he is also in the New York area. So they'll settle down in my neighborhood and uh, we'll have dinner parties. Quarantine will be over by then.
1: Sounds like you got it all figured out.
0: I do. Sure do. All right. All right. Well, my future plans are all set. And so it's a good time to end the show. Thanks for being with me today, Alex. Thank you. And Bill.
2: See you again next week.
0: We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Jimmy Hoover, and our contributing reporter, Pete Brush. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, it really does help us out if you leave a written review wherever you listen to podcasts because other people can more easily find our show. If you want to read more about the things we've talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.